In a little over four weeks, we are going to be uh, starting our Chinese congregation. Isn't that very exciting? Uh, this Sunday, the Chinese congregation are meeting right at the moment. They are just having a dry run-through with various music and things that they're doing. And uh, next week, they're going to be having a soft launch for two weeks. And then on the 5th of September, the Chinese congregation is going to be launching. Isn't that amazing to see what God has done in that place? Let's all give all glory to God, all honor to God. Well, who here enjoyed the Olympic Games? Do you enjoy watching the Olympic Games? There was this one story from the Olympic Games that really gripped me. Uh, Kenyan runner Abel Mutai was just a few meters from the finishing line, but got confused by the signage and stopped, thinking that he had finished the race. A Spanish runner, Ivan Hernandez, running behind him, realized what was happening with his fellow competitor and started yelling at the Kenyan, keep running, keep running. Abel Mutai did not know Spanish and did not understand it. But, what, but after using hand signals and nonverbal encouragement, he got the message. Uh, and so at uh, uh, Ivan Hernandez's encouragement, he kept on running and he claimed the prestigious prize of a gold medal. After the race, when a journalist asked Ivan why he did that, Ivan replied, my dream is that one day we'll have the kind of community in which we push each other and help each other to win. But the journalist said, but you, you could have won. And he said, well, I didn't let him win. He was already going to win. The race was his. But what were you thinking? It's a gold medal. Well, Ivan looked at him and said, well, what would be the merit of my victory? What would, there, what would the honor be in that medal? What would my mother think? <laughs> the reason that this gripped the imagination of the world is that Ivan Hernandez demonstrated something that is often lacking in our world. He valued integrity over winning. He valued character over winning and was willing to pay the cost, the cost of a gold medal. Well, today we are continuing our church leadership series, Church Leadership 101, as we are considering who God is calling to the role of elders. And last week, we looked at the job description of elders. What do elders do? And we saw from the Bible that elders shepherd God's people, and they oversee their discipleship, and they set the believers an example. But this morning, we are moving on, <clears throat> and we're going to be looking at the character requirements of elders. What does God require from elders' character? And as Damien read out, the chief passage in the New Testament that speaks about the character of elders is 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are what is known as the pastoral epistles. Paul wrote these letters to young pastors, giving them instructions on how the church ought to be ordered and what should be done in the church of God. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Paul begins this way. He says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, it's not his aspiration that's a noble task, it's the office itself that's a noble task. Now, when I hear the word office, you know what I immediately think of? I immediately think of Michael Scott and Dunder Mifflin and the office sitcom. 
But the office, the word office is not just a reference to a physical location when you do work, but rather the word office also can refer to a responsibility. For example, we talk about the office of the President of the United States of America, how he is in the Oval Office. He has this responsibility to lead over the United States. And in the church, there are church officers. Wayne Grudem describes it this way. He says, a church officer is someone who has been called by Christ and is publicly recognized as having the rights and responsibility to perform certain functions for the benefit of the whole church. So a church officer is someone who has been called by Christ, Christ calls them, and they are publicly recognized by the whole church as having rights and responsibilities to perform certain functions for the benefit of the whole church. Now in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we see two officers, church officers, outlined by Paul. The office of elder or overseer or pastor and the office of deacon. Now, when it comes to organizing the church and church government, throughout the history of the church, there have been a number of different models, a number of different ways that churches have organized themselves. For example, you have the Anglican or the Episcopal Church. Now, in the Anglican or Episcopal Church, the word Episcopal can be translated into English bishop. The idea in the Anglican Church is that authority is vested in a hierarchy of bishops, that there is this hierarchy of bishops. So you have the local church rector or minister, then above them you'll have a bishop who looks after a number of local church ministers, and then above that you'll have a archbishop who looks after a diocese, a whole region of churches. And so um, in this model, uh, the uh, authority comes from above. So when a local church rector is appointed, it is appointed by the bishop above. Now I know that in Anglican churches, they have church councils, but basically those church councils can just suggest a candidate. Really, the person who appoints the candidate is the bishop who is above that local church. Now, there are some benefits to this sort of form of church government. I mean, if you have someone who is a very good archbishop right at the top, then that means that the whole of, the, you know, the whole of those churches under them can be affected for good. Uh, I was reading earlier this year a book by Stuart Piggins, who is a historian. It was, it was the history of Christianity in Australia. And he was speaking about how in the history of, of Anglicanism in Sydney, there was a particular archbishop who came in who, who believed in biblical authority and he believed in the Bible. And because of that, that led to more college being a very conservative uh, college. And it led to, you know, the whole of Sydney diocese being a very evangelical diocese. And and that has sort of affected Australia and has sort of affected the world. Also, another form of church government is the Presbyterian church. Uh, the word Presbyterian comes from the Greek word presbutos, elders. And so the Presbyterian church is ruled or governed at a local level by a plurality of elders. But out of those elders, some are appointed to what is called a session. And those sessions sit above the church. And then above that, elders are appointed to a synod at a state level over the, the Presbyterian Church. Most of you are probably familiar with congregational church government. Congregational church government is the Baptistic model. In congregational church government or the Baptistic model, traditionally what you would have is you would have one elder or pastor, then you would have a diagonate, usually seven deacons because that's how many are mentioned in Acts chapter 6, and then the church would vote over various issues in 
in the church. And the members, therefore, would be vested with the authority to make decisions and vote over various things in the church. And this is because with our congregational church government, uh, the Baptists, so we as Baptists believe that there is a priesthood of all believers and that and therefore, all of believers should have a say in where the church is headed and what the church is doing. Now, you might ask the question, what is City Reach Oakton? What is our model of church government? Well, we have a hybrid between the Presbyterian and congregational model. So we do believe that, that we have elders who govern and they shepherd God's people, but we also believe in the priesthood of all believers, that all of the members of the church, therefore, as we make big decisions, the members of the church prayerfully consider those decisions, and we offer a vote to the members of the church. So every City Reach church is autonomous. City Reach West, City Reach Marion, City Reach Tugranong over in Canberra, they are autonomous churches, they have their own local elders, and under Christ, they are their own church. But we voluntarily associate together in the City Reach family of churches. So we voluntarily associate together. So what this means is that if for any reason a City Reach church under their eldership decided that they wanted to disassociate from the City Reach family of churches, they could. Because we believe in the autonomy of the local church, that each local church is under Christ and has its own elders and under Christ who are to govern and lead the church. Also, as I said, every City Reach church is governed and shepherded by a plurality of elders, and we're going to talk about that in a few minutes more. And also, the members of the church are called to vote on important matters. They're called to vote on pastoral and elder appointments, the annual budget, major directional changes, and financial issues. And so that's why in this process, we are calling the members of the church to prayerfully consider the things that we are putting before you. Now, as I said, in the Bible, there is a plurality of elders mentioned. Nowhere in the New Testament does it teach that there will only be one elder in every church. In fact, the opposite is the case. The New Testament assumes that there will be more than one elder in every church. For example, in Acts 14 and verse 23, this is after Paul's first missionary journey, where he went planting churches, he came back, and it says in verse 23, and when they have had appointed elders, notice that's plural, for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Or in James 5 and verse 14, it says this, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for, notice what it says, it's a plural, the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil, oil in the name of the Lord. And so what we believe at City Reach is that the church here shouldn't just be governed by one person, but actually there should be a plurality of elders who together shepherd and govern the church. Now you might ask the question, well, what about the role of senior pastor? Where is that found in the Bible? And the answer to that question is this, nowhere. <laughs> you won't find any references in the New Testament to a senior pastor. It's not there in the Bible. But what you do find is statements like this. Acts 1 verse 15. It says, In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. What you do find in the New Testament 
is that within that plurality of elders, there are some who have the gifting and calling from Christ to teach and preach the Word and are set aside for that ministry. So you'll remember that for Peter, at the end of John's Gospel, after he went back fishing, Jesus went and got him. And do you remember he recommissioned him? And he said to, said to Peter, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. So there is no such thing as a senior pastor technically in the New Testament, but there is this concept of the first among equals, that there will be someone who is set aside because of their gifting and because of their calling to a role of preaching and teaching in the church. And so in our church, we just call that the senior pastor, who under the elders has the role and responsibility of teaching the Word and leading the staff team under the authority of the other elders. I think this is also spelt out for us in 1 Timothy 5. This is hinted at in 1 Timothy 5 verse 17. Um, Paul says this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. There will be those who are set aside for the role of preaching and teaching. Now, what does that double honor mean? Well, in the next verse, Paul says this. He says, for, he gives us the reason why they are worthy of double honor. The scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. I think what the New Testament teaches is that there should be those who labor in preaching and teaching and we should set them aside and we should provide for their needs so that they will be released into the ministry of preaching and teaching. You know, for the last 12 years, I've been so blessed by this, the generosity of this congregation so that my family and I, we have been so well supported that we have been able to be released to study the Word, to be in prayer, so that we can teach the Word with power and authority. And I'm so thankful for this congregation's generosity in that way. So the office of overseer elder, there is a plurality in our church. We have a plurality of elders, and they are the ones who are charged with the responsibility to shepherd and oversee people's discipleship. And then we also have the role of senior pastor who just has one vote alongside of all the other elders but has the role and responsibility of preaching, primarily preaching and teaching the Word of God and also leading the staff team in the fulfillment of the vision under the elders of the church. But now, so we've looked at the office of elder. Let's now look at the character qualifications that Paul gives for elders 1 Timothy 3 verse 2, he goes on to say, Therefore, since the office of elder is a noble task, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Now, this is a catch-all term that summarizes everything else that Paul will unpack in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The KJV, it um, renders it this way, blameless. The message, the paraphrase by Eugene Peterson, he says, well thought of. An overseer must be well thought of. Literally, in Greek, it means nothing to take hold of. Um, Warren Wearsby, in his commentary on 1 Peter, he says, there must be nothing in his life that Satan or the unsaved can take a hold of to criticize the church. So it should be like this, is that no one out there, when they hear that we're putting these elders up, no one out there should be saying, what, really? You're putting up that person? 
Do you know what they're like? Do you know how they deal in business? Do you know how they treat their family? They should be blameless. Now, we're not speaking about sinless perfection because all of our elders are, you know, men in the midst of the sanctification process. God is working on them and transforming them into the image of Christ. And also, the men will be of differing, um, like just personal maturity because they're of different ages. So, they'll have different experiences, life experiences. But what we're looking for, what we're looking for is mature men, mature men. Uh, Probably uh, an English word that probably characterizes this better is men of integrity. Integrity. The word integrity is the idea of a state of being whole and undivided. There is nothing behind closed doors that would bring shame. That who they are in public is who they are in private. That is a person of integrity. They are honest. They are authentic. Now, what Paul goes on to do is he goes on to spell out what this integrity looks like. He says, firstly, they must be people of moral integrity. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Quite literally in Greek, this is a one-woman man. Now, this doesn't mean that necessarily that, you know, single, single people cannot be elders in a local church, but rather this is talking of moral integrity, moral purity. There should be nothing that you can find on an elder's browser history that would bring shame to the name of Christ. Secondly, there is personal integrity. Paul goes on to say, therefore, He goes on to say, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-control, respectable. The New King James Version renders it this way, temperate, sober-minded, and of good behavior. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, the message says, they must be cool and collected. You know, I love um, the way that uh, that Gene gets. I think he really sheds some light on this in his book, The Measure of a Man, He says, Paul was describing a man who has a clear focus on life. Practically speaking, a temperate man doesn't lose his physical, psychological, and spiritual orientation. He is stable and steadfast, and his thinking is clear. A temperate man doesn't go to extremes. On the one hand, he doesn't believe that he's responsible to solve all the problems in the world, allowing himself to get sidetracked from his priority as a Christian. On the other hand, He does what he can to solve humankind's social ills, but again, without neglecting his biblical priorities. So our elders need to be people of personal integrity, calm, cool, and collected. And they need to be this way because oftentimes our elders have to deal with many tricky and difficult situations. So they need to be people who it says in the Psalms, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, who does not fear bad news. Because his faith is in the Lord. They need to be men like that. They need to be men of biblical integrity. Paul goes on to say they need to be hospitable, able to teach. Hospitable means that they are willing, they're approachable. They're approachable people. Able to teach. Now, this word able to teach is really interesting in Greek. It's the word didaskos. And it can either mean skillful in teaching or the virtue which renders one teachable. So it can mean, on one hand, 
they are, you know, elders are able to unpack biblical truth, are able to unpack biblical truth, which I think is definitely needed by the elders, because they have to guard the good deposit of faith, the faith that is handed down once for all. So our elders need to be skillful in teaching. But also, you know, it could be rendered teachable, which is why in some translations it's rendered that an elder needs to be apt to teach. In other translations, it says that they need to be teachable. So which is it? Well, once again, I think Gene Gepps is helpful. He says, I believe, however, that didaskos has a far more profound meaning. It's the ability to communicate in a humble, sensitive, non-defensive, and yes, teachable way. He says this, in his communication, Timothy was to avoid arguments. He was to be kind to all people, Christians and non-Christians. He was to be patient even when he was falsely accused and personally attacked. He was to correct those who were opposing him in a gentle manner. Uh, Paul would write this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 and 26. He would say, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach. There's our word again. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. You know, this reminds me of when I was back um, as, uh, you know, much younger, I was at, at a camp, a Christian camp with my family, and there was this other pastor who was there, and I was at Bible college at the time, and we were talking to this other pastor about his ministry, and I was lecturing him about what he needed to do in his ministry, and uh, as I was lecturing him and telling him what he needed to do, because, you know, Bible college students are the fount of all wisdom, they've, they've had like three years training, and then they know everything, and so I was like, you know, just, you know, just sharing these things with him, and I'll never forget, he was just like, you know, just going, oh, thank you, just nodding, just, you know, taking it all in, and I googled him later, and he was actually the pastor of one of the fastest growing churches in the United States. <laughs> so here's this young Bible college student lecturing him, and he just took it. He was teachable. That's how our elders should be. They need to be men of social integrity. Paul says they are not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, not a drunkard. That means we shouldn't find them in the pub. Not violent. They shouldn't be people who, who have a violent temper. They shouldn't be quarrelsome, always demanding their own way. And not a lover of money. I love the way the King James Version puts this. They shouldn't love filthy lucre. <laughs> what a way of saying it. Filthy lucre. Relational integrity. They need to be men of relational integrity. Paul goes on to say, he says, he must manage his own household well. With all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? The very first place that we need to be looking when we're considering elders is at their homes. How well have they done in shepherding the hearts of their wife and their children? For if they cannot disciple the hearts of their wife and their children, then how can they care for the church of God? This is what the Word of God says. And finally, spiritual integrity. Spiritual integrity. Paul says, He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit 
and fall into the condemnation of the devil. You see, with the office of elder comes public. There comes this public, it's a public office, so people publicly see you. And it's easy for you to become conceited and therefore fall into the condemnation of the devil. The devil can attack you. And Paul goes on to say, in verse 7, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So it mustn't just be a Sunday Christian, where on the inside he says all the right things. But there must be that integrity in his life. Because the devil has schemes to take down church leaders and to bring shame upon the name of Christ and upon the church of God. And so we need men of spiritual integrity, men who are filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with faith, men who are in God's Word, men of prayer. And so this is a high and holy calling that God has placed here. Elders need to be people of integrity, moral integrity, personal integrity, biblical integrity, social integrity, relational integrity, spiritual integrity. Now let me give you some applications. Let me give you some applications as a church. Firstly, you need to look for these qualities in the candidates we are placing before you. You need to look for these qualities in the candidates that we are placing before you. This letter would be read out publicly to the whole community and therefore I think, I think we should be looking for these qualities. Now, the elders, we have observed these qualities in the men that we are recommending for you, to you, but you as the congregation need to actually consider these things. You need to, in your conscience, take these things before the Lord because as I said, we are we believe in the priesthood of all believers and we are doing this together as a church family. But also, can you pray for these men and their families? It's not an easy thing to be put up publicly in front of a whole community. And these men and their families, their wives and their families are precious parts of our community. So let's pray for them through this whole process that God's will will be done and they will be honored regardless of what the will of the Lord is. And how and what the Lord actually brings about. So these are serious things, aren't they? But there is a time to be serious. There is a time to be sober about the church of the living God. Because it's His church that He purchased with His own blood. Let's pray together, shall we? Why don't you stand with me? Father, we come before you and... Um, we're thankful that your word has made it very, very clear what we are to look for in the lives of elders. And Lord, Lord, we know that none of the men who are placed before us or none of our present elders are perfect, but they are men in, in the process of sanctification. And we thank you for your precious grace and your precious love, which actually leads us on. But Lord, we do pray that you would move the hearts and the consciences of the members of this church 
because we are seeking your will, Lord Jesus. You are the head of this church. It's not our will that we want done, it's your will that we want done. And we want to surrender and submit to your will, Lord God. And so, Father, we do pray for Damien and Rachel. We do pray for Harold and Julie. We do pray for Abra and Sandy. We do lift up before you Gary and Mary. We thank you for how you've led them to our church. And as we, we read in the scriptures, you place the members in the body as you will. It's not, our, it's not us. It's what you want, Lord. And we do want to be a community that is led by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Not led by our flesh. Lord, we want to be led by you, Lord. Because we want what you want, Lord God, in all of our lives. And so, Lord, we pray for this, Lord. We intercede for this. We pray against the schemes of the enemy to the snares of the enemy, Lord, that they wouldn't be, Lord, that these men you would be protected from the condemnation of the devil and the snare of the devil to trip them up and be defeated by temptation. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for the victory that we have in Jesus, that in him everything has been nailed to the cross and he made a public spectacle of the devil and we thank you that no weapon that formed against us shall prosper, but all that rise up against us will fall. For we are children of the living God, purchased by his blood, safe within his hands, safe within the hand of Christ and safe within the hand of God. Thank you, Father, for that extreme safety. Lord God, you are worthy. Oh, Lord God, you are worthy, 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 